0: Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Joe Seddon, who is the founder and the CEO of Zero Gravity and also is a Forbes 30 Under 30 winner. We're going to be talking today about everything from startups to entrepreneurship to education to technology and beyond. Welcome back to the podcast. The Alfie Wottom Podcast. Thanks for coming on, Joe. Good to to meet, good to connect. Awesome. Well, I interviewed your CTO um, a couple of months ago and we talked about everything from building zero gravity to the future of tech to different trends and beyond, but wanted to bring you in today to talk a little bit more about your journey really in zero gravity and, and that sort of thing. One thing that we have in common is that we're both from Yorkshire.
1: Brilliant. So if you know,
0: whereabouts in Yorkshire are you from?
1: So I'm from a small town called Morley. In west yorkshire so it's all between leeds and wakefield what about okay. yourself i'm from york, originally. york. Oh, yeah, yeah. that's just about yorkshire yeah, yeah you got the york part of the name but like north yorkshire i'm not sure it can compete with west yorkshire to be honest mate
0: <laughs> your accent might be a little bit a little bit stronger than mine the, the yorkshire twang
1: my accent's not that strong though like i've been down south now for like eight years so i went okay. to uh, oxford for university yeah my accent was diluted at that point because yeah. i was surrounded by lots of people from very different backgrounds and when I turned up on Freshers' Week, a lot of people didn't understand my Yorkshire lingo, so I dialed it down over the time, but yeah. I've been in London for the past five years again, it's been reinforced, but yeah. I had this humiliating experience a couple of years ago where I did a, an interview on BBC, Look North, so like okay. the news channel I used to watch growing up and I was so excited and they're yeah. getting to meet they sort of presenters who are watching the TV screen. There's this guy called Harry Grasham, if you know him. Okay, yes, I know have seen him um,
0: at the Yorkshire show, this like big festival they do in Yorkshire, actually. I saw him sharing a sheep once,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, like, he's an incredible guy. He's a sort of iconic Yorkshire presenter. I think he's got something like nine kids and he had, his, had like a, a child like five or six years ago and he's okay. like 80 years old. Um, but yeah, met him on the sofa and then in the interview, the uh, presenters like, mugged me off for losing my Yorkshire accent on live TV, and I thought, God, I've got to do something about this and get my accent back. Well, you, you, you went from you know, Yorkshire, which has got you know, nice
0: areas, but it's, um, it's not as wealthy as London, perhaps, or, or the uh, students at the University of Oxford, where, where you attended. Tell us a little bit about that journey, kind of going from growing up in, in Yorkshire to going to like one of the most elite schools in the world and surrounded by money and prestige and power and all of, all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, so people call Yorkshire God's Own County, don't they? they do. It is a beautiful place in, in many ways, but like the Yorkshire Dales and stuff. Yeah. But economically, the divide between Yorkshire and London yeah. is even bigger than the divide between West and East Germany mm. when the Berlin Wall came down. So that gap is absolutely huge. And I grew up in a small post-industrial town, Okay. And. Know, it's, it's sort of like a, a town in the bottom, 40% of the income distribution. Most people are like just about yeah. managing, but the, the big issue is that you're completely geographically disconnected from opportunity. There's mm-hmm. this crazy fact, but to get on the bus in Wakefield, to get from one side of Wakefield to the other on the bus, it takes longer than the train journey from Wakefield to London. So yeah. even if yeah. you're living in a small Yorkshire town, the time it takes you to get to a city center in Leeds or Sheffield or Wakefield is, is humongous. And I, I think that's a massive impediment yeah. to be able to access you know, the elite top jobs because most of them naturally um, are in metropolises, whether yeah. it's London, Manchester, Leeds, or or elsewhere. So I, I sort of faced those barriers the first hand of living in a small town and going to state schools. And I made the journey to Oxford University. Yeah. And I was one of the lucky ones. Like I, I was someone who was, you know, I was driven, um, I was sort of academically, um, talented i suppose and the internet for me was a massive leveler because i didn't have anyone in my family who'd been to oxford before like very few people from my school when in morley where i grew up that was a very weird thing to do in the year i graduated from oxford not a single person in the morley parliamentary constituency got an offer for oxford university which is is crazy when you think about it um but the internet was a leveler for me because i was able to research and watch youtube videos of Of sort of university influencers who'd been through the process and although that didn't give me the complete inside track and I didn't have someone I could directly speak to it did give me a little bit of information and and that's probably ultimately why I was able to to win a place and when I got to university it's almost like I had that emperor's got no clothes moment where I met all these people who I presumed were going to be incredibly academically talented like geniuses and Einsteins everywhere and there were some people like that, but actually the vast majority of people were no more gifted or talented than a lot of the people I grew up with yeah. in Yorkshire. And it was that Emperor's Got No Close moment where I realised, wow, just that the vast gaps in opportunity in the UK sure. is what creates those kind of gulfs in university and careers. It's got nothing to do with natural talent yeah. or um, aptitude. It's all to do with access to opportunity. And I thought there's got to be a way to change this. And I'd seen how technology companies throughout my life had disrupted all sorts of other other sectors, whether it was you know, Uber disrupting travel around towns and cities, or delivery with takeaways, or yeah. Facebook with with social networks. And I thought there's got to be a way to use technology to solve this problem of how you match talent with opportunities. So that's what I set out to do when I graduated. Hey,
0: okay, this podcast is brought to you by WeLoveAlpha.com. If you're looking to grow and hire and scale your software engineering team in the UK, then go to welovealpha.com to hire the best software developers on the market. Everything across Java to C Sharp to PHP to Python to React and Angular and mobile and more. Go to welovealpha.com to hire the best software engineers in the UK now. Did you feel imposter syndrome at all kind of going into oxford you know surrounded by people
1: who perhaps had more privileged upbringings yeah 100 percent. i was walking into a very alien yeah. environment like the dreaming spies of oxford like even physically it's a very intimidating sure. space and a far cry from morley in west yorkshire and i met people from lots of different backgrounds so people who were privately educated and so growing up in in west yorkshire like very few people go to yeah. It's private schools almost everyone state educated and um they met people who they grew up in you know, nice townhouses in west london their yeah. multi-million pound houses i remember distinctly going to like a house party um in the sort of holiday between terms in my first year and it was in this like multi-million pound townhouse in Fulham. i was like wow yeah nice. I mean, this house costs more than every single house in my street put together <laughs> um so it, it was a kind of introduction to another world yeah. and i did feel a great sense of imposter syndrome but for me personally, it was transformative because it also enabled me to build a very different type of network as well. Like I was, like I mentioned, I was one of the lucky ones who, going to university, I started to be able to you know, speak to lots of different people. Yeah. I think just having the badge of going to Oxford as well as a massive yeah. signalling device, which still holds a lot of currency, so it was a game changer for me in terms of accumulating what academics I suppose would call like social capital, sure. cultural yeah. capital as well. And my, my thought was, is there a way to do this which doesn't require someone to go to one particular institution? Yeah. Because only yeah. a, a limited number of people can go to a particular university. It's a scarce resource. There's only so much yeah. capacity in a, in a college-based uh, city. I thought there must be a way to kind of democratize and scale access to this. And that's where the nub of the idea for Zero Gravity came from. Okay, so you, you graduated, you didn't do the corporate routes, did you immediately go into entrepreneurship and, and start it? Yeah, so I had job offers when I finished yeah. university, had a, an offer to become a commercial solicitor, sure. a sort of sure. a layer training contract, which I turned down. And, and that, was, that was a massive decision at the time because yeah. the, those training contracts to go work in commercial law, like the, the quantums yeah, yeah. of money offered are humongous. Yeah, for a graduate as well,
0: it's, it's crazy to like enter your working world
1: already on a much higher salary than a lot of people who have been doing it for years, you know? Yeah. Like once you qualify at the age of 24, yeah. you can be on uh, like six figures, like well over six figures, yeah. a lot of these elite law firms. And, and for someone like me coming from a, a town where the sort of average salary is probably around 22 K yeah. a year, that's a huge amount of money to turn down. And my family, and my friends, I think thought I was a bit, bit nuts in all honesty. Um, but I knew I wanted to be a, an entrepreneur. That was my, my passion. I, I'd seen this problem um, from growing up in West Yorkshire, they going to university that I wanted to solve. So when I graduated, so rather than going to London, I'd actually yeah. moved back into my childhood bedroom no in in West Yorkshire, okay. which was, was difficult. I became sort of slightly socially dislocated from my friends yeah. who were all moving uh, to London to start their grad jobs. And there was a lot of this self-doubt, but also doubt from my kind of social circles as well. Um, like, I, I don't think anyone really thought it was possible yeah. to be able to build a business straight out of university with no experience and resources. And in many ways, no, they're right. No, the statistical odds yeah, of building a, a business without friends and family funding are, are pretty damn low. And the nine out of 10 founders in the UK are from the most affluent yeah. backgrounds. And, and that's because, you no, know, to succeed, you've got a huge advantage if you've got access to financial capital yeah. a network, the inside track for mentors. And I didn't have any of that. So there was a lot of self dab also doubt from my network as well. And it's, it's only really nowadays, now that Zero Gravity you no know, grown, you've got you know, big clients, raised investment, a lot of the social trappings of, yeah. of success at the early stage that people think, you know, that wow, it's great being an entrepreneur. You must have a fantastic you know, day in the life and it must be really cool running a company. That sort of, uh, that sort of mentality wasn't there in the early days. People thought it was bonkers yeah. for starting a company. Um, and I, I think that culture around entrepreneurship in the UK is still massively underpowered oh, yeah. versus yeah. versus the US, like especially outside of London. Outside of London there's almost no culture at all yeah. around starting a, a business, certainly a tech business. Uh, so it's it's no wonder that people don't they get on and start businesses because if you don't have support from your personal network to do something so difficult, challenging, psychologically demanding, very few people are going to to start those sort of businesses, and I probably only did it because I was sort of uh, so passionate about the issue I was solving, but also a bit chippy as well. I'd always been someone who'd sort of thrived on being the underdog and doubted a little bit. Sure, um, but the vast majority of people I think need support in order to get going.
0: What about um, let's just talk about entrepreneurship for, for a second, because I, I echo what you're saying. You know, I similar to you didn't come up with a, a privileged background. I bootstrapped my businesses. I've never raised in investment, and you're you're right. It's a lot harder when you're you know trying to scrap and, and grind and, and almost do it yourself with no network, you know, no money, no no connections, you know. And that's a very small percentage of companies that are able to become successful. That 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 start on on that journey, right? Um, talk to us a little bit about entrepreneurship. You know, you've you've now gone through the journey of starting something. You know building it raising cash getting an office building a great team getting something out there which really is benefiting the the, the world and the community and, and everyone else in between talk to us about i suppose for those that are about to start that journey themselves you know people that want to become entrepreneurs maybe they're working for a company they're thinking about leaving starting their own building their own venture what Advice would you give to them? What advice would you give to yourself if you could speak to your you know, younger self and, and, and talk about before you've gone on that journey? What, what insights would you give around the topic of entrepreneurship in, in the UK and I guess being a young
1: entrepreneur as well? Yeah, it's a topic I'm really passionate about because, as, as I mentioned, nine out of ten founders are from the most affluent backgrounds. Yeah. And I was very keen, like once Zero Gravity had sort of taken off, that I wanted to become the kind of advocate for that one out of 10 are the people who, you know, do come from backgrounds where it's unorthodox to be an entrepreneur. And I have people who slide into my LinkedIn DMs every day who are starting businesses from these backgrounds. They always ask me, you know, what's the kind of magic source or the inside track to success? And I don't think there's a kind of one-size-fits-all approach, but I do think there are certain bits of wisdom that I wish I'd known at the age of 21 that I, I do know now. And one of them is, I think, around you know, strategy and focus. Now, people throw around the word strategy, yeah. but to be honest, when I was 21 years old, I had no idea what strategy actually sure. meant. It's one of those words you say, but you'd actually really know what it, what it means. And, and one of these ideas I quite like is this idea of strategy as sacrifice, which is you know, when you start a business and you've got a vision in your head, an idea about how to change the world, it's very easy to become overexcited yeah. and sort of start planning out your empire. No, we're gonna do this and this, and the product's gonna have all these features. But the reality is like when you're starting, you've got almost no resources. Yeah. You have to be so focused and selective yeah. about what you do. And, and the, what strategy really is, is actually working out what not to do. Mm. So one of the first things you should do as a founder is essentially plot out what your key milestones are going to be to get your business through the first six months and 12 months, and choose those very selective things you're going to focus on. So it may be that one day you want to build the world's best B2C social brand, but do you really need to do that in your first six months to get to the the, the first sort of one or two milestones you need to get to? And um, so that idea of strategy of sacrifice, focusing on a few key things, creating milestones, I think it's incredibly important. And that's something I learned very quickly because at the beginning of my journey, I wanted zero gravity to be everything to everyone. I realized I was way too stretched. And when I actually just doubled down on a couple of things and let some things just sit for a while, I was able to move much, much faster. So strategy is sacrificed. I think is important. I think that the second one is regarding uh, technology as well. I was really embarrassed when I first started my business, that we didn't have very good proprietary technology. The first version of the platform was an MVP that I'd created myself, I had really good front-end skills that I'd self-taught. My back-end skills were like very basic and I created this really basic MVP and I remember just being constantly embarrassed that the technology wasn't as good as I wanted it to be and I had this vision in my head and the technology just hadn't caught up quickly enough. and because I didn't have the resources to immediately hire a team of devs, yeah. um, I had to get pretty scrappy mm. with the technology. But actually, I think that turned out to be one of the best decisions like I made by accident, which is like when you're starting, you just want to validate the concept behind your business. And, and the weird thing about human beings, whether you're selling to consumers or whether you're selling to human be- beings within a business, is they don't always act the way you think. They're sure, going to act. Sure. Now, you can have the best product intuition in the world, but no, 50% of the time, you're going to launch something you think is going to work, and it's not going to work quite the way you, you initially assumed. So, the, the thing you need to think about is how can you, as cheaply, as quickly as possible, get a product to market that people can, can use? And I think for a lot of people, that means getting pretty scrappy with technology in the early days. There's yeah, so many yeah. incredible SaaS products out there. You can patch together you know, products that you'll be familiar with, like you no know, Zapier, are yep. you know, yep. using Airtable, Typeform, whatever it is, yep. and actually building your first product you know, by linking pre-existing products together yes. is a much quicker way to get going. And and you shouldn't feel any degree of embarrassment about that. Actually, it's the most optimal thing to do. You're so you're proving uh, the concept, aren't you? You're, you're, you're getting
0: what you need in the early days of a business. I always say is people willing to give you their email address um, in exchange for something, whether that's a report or a book or a video or a course or a tool or something like that because if you can gather people that are interested in that as an MVP then you have something later on you can sell them but most people they, they do it the complete opposite they spend lots of money lots of time lots of energy effort resources a team building something and then they go out to the market and then the market doesn't even want it half of the time so it's about going
1: back reversing it you know first principles isn't it yeah, I think, I think that's very obvious wisdom to people like me and you who've, who've built something, but I think sure. for a lot of people starting off, that's not obvious whatsoever because most entrepreneurs people look up to are later stage entrepreneurs or even people who are you know, running publicly listed companies like Elon Musk's or Richard Brands and all people see is the proven proprietary technology, yeah. you know, the Tesla car or the you know, virgin, virgin uh, airplane and uh, the transport system. But actually when you start, yeah. it's it's better not to have a proven proprietary product. And I didn't realize that when I was 21. Well, you mentioned the, the Virgin
0: airplane, that's a perfect example because Richard Branson, he talks about this in his book, uh, Losing My Virginity. The first time he launched his, his airline was he was at a um, an airport and his plane got canceled. So he walked around and everybody else on the plane had their you know, flight canceled as well. So in true entrepreneurship style, he wrote on a piece of cardboard, um, we're gonna be flying, you know, from here to this destination, um, you know, let me know if you're interested. And he got enough people together that were interested that he was able to charter a plane. And he was walking up and down the plane, serving drinks, and back in the day, you could probably smoke on planes, and they were having a great time. And that was the start of the, the airline. So. Being very scrappy, not spending loads of money on brand and, and logos and, and the team and everything. He just did it himself like, as a true entrepreneur should be. Um, let, let's talk about zero gravity for, for, for those that aren't aware of, of what you do. Just, I guess, give us the elevator pitch. You know,
1: describe what it is in, in a nutshell. Sure. So the kind of why behind the business, you know, why I found zero gravity is that you know, we have this maxim yep. internally that you know, talent is everywhere, opportunity is not. And we're going to be the business that changes that so zero gravity is a is a tech platform that powers students from low opportunity areas into top universities and careers so we've built now proprietary technology that we use to identify talented students whilst they're still at school the people who on a cv or personal statement might not look like your top one percent of candidates but when you actually look at their performance in the context of where they're from are exactly the sort of people that every business a university should want, and then we've built a, a product experience that optimises those people's chances of breaking into elite institutions. You no know, builds their social capital, their cultural capital, their ability to navigate complex admission systems. You no know, builds a network for them, helps them overcome financial constraints. Yeah. And uh, you know, since launch, we've now supported over eight thousand students from low opportunity backgrounds into highly selective universities, and we've got hundreds now. They're starting internships and grad roles at some of the employers that we, we work with. So there's a clear like mission behind the business, but yeah. but the, the business aspect of it is I think historically people have seen like diversity recruitment, social mobility as a kind of charitable endeavour. It used to be something yeah. that 10 years ago was run out of corporate CSR departments or you know, university widening participation mm. departments. And it was a little bit of a tick box exercise, but I think things have dramatically changed. Yeah. There's, there's such a huge drive now for businesses and universities to become more representative of the country and i think that's partly due to the esg agenda partly due to regulatory pressure but also i think consumers and employees are demanding that their organizations are representative it's something that no gen z audience in particular care really deeply about and i think businesses have also decided to take a different approach to this now because a lot of them have actually looked at the data within their own workforces and seeing that their most productive employees are the ones from sort of working class, sure. the opportunity backgrounds, which is quite intuitive when you think about it. If you're hiring people who've had to un- overcome insurmountable odds, it probably means they've got a lot of raw talent, they've yeah. got a lot of resilience and grit, and th- those are a lot of the sort of behaviors that will uh, enable you to see in almost any, any business. So there's a huge report put out by McGin- McKinsey at the start of this year that looked at the power of social mobility from a productivity point of view. And some of the partners that we work with, like KPMG, have done these uh, internal workplace analyses and seen that the most productive, the highly progressing senior partners are from these backgrounds. And, and that's turned this issue you know, from a kind of social imperative into a commercial one. And what we're trying to build at Zero Gravity is the kind of business solution for employers and universities to be able to tap into a tech platform that gives them access to this incredible talent, but also a way to actively upskill those students and give them a better chance of breaking into their institutions.
0: Okay, you talked there a little bit about, um, I guess, hiring and um, because you're not a technical Background, are you? You're you uh, Apart from the front-end skills that you independently taught yourself,
1: you don't have a computer science degree, or you know, same as myself, right? I did PP at university. Yeah, there th- was, there was no. Uh, <laughs> we did a little bit of sort of, uh, yeah, like uh, statistics and using things like R. Sure. But other than that, there was no computer science involved whatsoever. Now, I was self self-taught. At the age of sort of 12 and 13 and and this was back when it was pretty difficult to be self-taught as well like i remember buying those horrendous manuals like you know html and css for dummies but i didn't have the kind of no deep software engineering skills that would allow me to be completely autonomous in building products Hey,
0: really quick video just to give you a free subscription to Coda magazine. Coda is the number one publication for all the latest tech news, expert insights and exclusive industry interviews. With Coda, you get the inside scoop on what's happening with Elon Musk, with Bill Gates, with Jeff Bezos, with Mark Zuckerberg and so much more. So if you work in the technology industry, then I'd highly recommend that you give Coda a read today. Just scan the QR code on the screen for free access now, or go to welovealpha.com forward slash magazine to get your free subscription today. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, your approach when it comes to building a team and a culture then, because um, ultimately, you know, if, if we don't hire, we're just, you know, I guess freelancers with solopreneurs and that, that sort of thing. And the difference between that and I guess what, you know, where we are is we've built a, uh, a process, a system and a team that can help us get towards that mission faster, quicker and better. Um, and what, what is your approach when it comes to hiring? Do you look for that underrepresented background as, as you do with your platform? Um, you know, what's your approach when it comes to that, that side of
1: the coin? Yeah, it's, it's a really big lesson for me to learn, actually, because as a kind of when i was in the first bootstrapped phase of zero gravity's growth there had to be an unadulterated founder where i was almost the ultimate generalist i was sort of doing everything having to acquire new skills because i couldn't afford to hire people but once we raised our first round of investment and then we did the seed round around two years later i had to think far more about actually how do i build leverage. Again, that's one of those wanky words that a lot of founders (laughs) or business people throw around. But essentially what it means is how can you get results through others rather than just getting results directly through your own activities. I think one of the easiest ways to get results through others is by having an incredible hiring process that allows you to access the best talent and building an incredible culture that allows those people to thrive. Like if you have those two things, then as long as you've got a decent strategy, it's quite difficult to go wrong. Mm. So the way I thought about that at Zero Gravity is I wanted to throw out the kind of blueprint of how to hire people in a a, a business. So one of the things that we looked for is we used our own technology to try and hire kind of unorthodox uh, hidden talent who a lot of businesses might not uh, be interested in because on paper, maybe they don't look yeah. as good as, as other people. So I, I deliberately tried to look for people who'd you know, come from socially mobile backgrounds had overcome the you know, really difficult odds and they would had to take risk in their life. And I think that's really important, particularly in a startup, because not only does that give you access to a lot of people with a lot of raw talent, mm. but a lot of the time it gives you access to people who've got a huge sense of drive and also resilience. And drive and resilience are two, I think, behaviors or or traits which in a startup environment you need in particular because as you'll know the startups are an emotional roller coaster you've got like so little capacity you're under resourced but you're trying to grow really quickly and the 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 highs are high but the lows are incredibly low like when something goes wrong it can feel like a gut punch and things go wrong quite often in a startup so having people with resilience and grit It's super important. So we used almost a very similar methodology to how we bring talent onto our platform to also bring talent into our business as well. And we hired for values rather than for experience because I think when you're trying to build a startup, you're trying to defy the odds and you almost need to have that siege mentality. Mm -hmm. We have people from a variety of different backgrounds, a variety of different skills, a variety of different ways of looking at the world, but people who are unified on a core set and values and mission. Like you really need that tight team of people. So if you have someone who's incredibly talented and skilled, but they're not aligned on mission, they're not aligned on values, Mm -hmm. in a startup environment in particular, I think that can be a disaster because you're gonna undermine that siege mentality. Oh, you need one sort of rotten apple to spoil the entire culture. So we really emphasized hiring for values rather than skills in our recruitment process. And that did lead us to have a very young the ambitious team, I think the average age at zero gravity is probably around you know, 27, 28 okay, cool. uh, years old. Um, but we've got a lot of people who are you know, based on like, how old they are and their level of experience are huge massive outperformers. Yeah. And when it comes to culture, again, I'd, I'd never been in the business before, so I had no blueprint to copy. Yeah. But, and in many ways, I just I sat down, I created one of those sort of culture decks, so I just tried okay. to put on paper. What are the things that I as an individual, I as a founder, really value? And when I say value, I mean value far more than other people and other businesses. Like I hate it when businesses say their values are things like compassion or integrity. It's like everyone values those. Like yeah. Your values have to be things that like critically differentiate yeah. your business. Like What do you really value, but the business down the road doesn't care about that much. So we came up with these like four very unique values, which have these funny names and, um, and we've really tried to embed them in everything we do and, and that does create a slight cult-like mentality but I think yeah. that's what you need in a startup because as I mentioned before you are trying to defy the odds and the only way you can defy the odds is by having people who genuinely believe they're part of something special that is you know, destined for success yeah. and that is a really difficult mindset to create when you're in an environment where statistically you're destined for failure. So I think creating that cult-like mentality around your mission and values is super important. So that's something we put a massive degree of emphasis on. What are what the four values? What, what, what,
0: like what do you look for in terms of the... Because you're right, like you can have people who technically fit all the boxes. Like this skill tick, this many years of experience tick. But then when you get them, they don't gel with the team, and it's not just about the hard skills, it's about the soft skills and the culture as well. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, Peter Drucker, the, the management um, guru, he said, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think it's so true, man, if, you, if you've got like a team of people that are like, like really going at it together, like you can almost throw the PowerPoint out the window, like, like they'll find a way to make it work. So on
1: that theme, what are those four central pillars when, you, you know, when it comes to your DNA? Sure, so they've all got these weird names. So our four values are stand up straight, run towards danger, change it up, and make it happen. Okay. So I sort of came up with these little phrases, memorable names, to, um, to sort of differentiate the values from the sort of standard you know, one, one word value names. Yeah. And, and like stand up straight, for instance, is this idea that you should say what you mean okay. and mean what you say. Now as someone from Yorkshire, I really value direct, yeah, yeah, yeah. no no bullshit communication style. And I think that's incredibly important in a startup because you're such an early stage business. You don't have a well-defined sort of processes or business model yet yeah. behind what you're doing. So you need everyone to be hyper constructively critical and accountable behind what they're doing because things are going to go wrong. Yeah. And if you have your head buried in the sand and if you tr- trying to be too political or diplomatic about what you're doing, then you're not going to actually solve some of those fundamental problems behind your businesses. Mm. And again, that might sound obvious, but I think a lot of people who work in corporate environments, yeah. you get trained to being very political and diplomatic. You know, you don't criticize you know, what your line manager yeah. you know, does yeah. uh, to their face. Um, you, you think about how to navigate these complex hierarchies, you know, the there might be particular initiatives in the business that are favoured by certain people. You need to advance your own career, so yeah. you shouldn't kind of like criticise those. That sort of mentality is the death knell yeah. of a startup. Yeah. Yeah. So we tried to create a, a, a kind of culture where no matter where you are in the kind of hierarchy, whether you're the founder or on the exec team, or you just joined a week ago or you're intern, you kind of feel safe to be able to constructively yeah. you know, criticise things and speak in a very direct manner and I think that the way I can kind of demonstrate that that uh, you know, value comes through is I've had lots of comments from people who come into our office that when they come in, they can't tell who's the founder, who's on the exec team. There's, there's no sense of like hierarchy from yeah, yeah. even looking at the way people are sat, sure, the way sure. people talk to each other. And I see that as a massive success. That yes, is a stand yeah, up straight yeah. value coming through, yeah. where that person on week one of the company feels confident to be able to express themselves yeah. in a direct, you no know, non diluted way. It's the opposite to like
0: a big corporate how you've got like the glass you know bubble office and then you have their assistant outside and you know cubicles with old-fashioned sliders and everything else in in
1: between. And that's not to say that hierarchy isn't important like I'm not someone who believes in like having a completely flat organizational structure but I think when it comes to communication it's important to have a structure which feels flat and it doesn't feel hierarchical.
0: Okay um last question around I guess um, leadership because we've talked about hiring we've talked about culture we've talked about bringing in the right people but um, what about when they're there like how do you how do you make them stay how do we reduce retention how do we um, you know people leaving attrition rather how do we inspire people to do their best work possible you know we've talked about the values we've talked about hiring and culture but how, how does it work from a leadership perspective you know what what would be your advice to leaders current or future that, that are listening to this now
1: yeah I think when it comes to retention in a startup you should think about it you know, through the lens of like you know regrettable uh, you know, churn or people leaving because one of the things I had to learn quite quickly is that in a startup you should hire slowly but let people go quickly, which is I think some of the biggest mistakes I made was when I made the hiring decision too quickly and then I could see that someone wasn't correct for a role and we let them go uh, too late Mm. when actually it was perfectly obvious within three or four weeks it wasn't the right fit Mm. and I should have been stronger in making some of those decisions and that's a learning process I had to go on as a sort of 23, 24 year old who was you know, still finding their, their feet at the time. So I, I don't think you should optimize for retention. Yeah. I think you should optimize to reduce regrettable uh, churn. And that's you know, those people who, who are great, yeah. who are delivering value for the business, how do you retain yeah. those people? And we haven't had any regrettable churn to date. We've, I think over the past two years, we've hired uh, 26 people, three of them we've let go, but the yeah. sort of core team, uh, no, we've got. We, we've yeah. managed to keep, and we haven't had anyone leave you know, because they've got another job or been offered sure. offered more money. And I think the, the way we've been able to do that is because because we do have that really strong culture. Yeah. I think you know, people genuinely believe in our our mission. Yeah. You know, people want to solve this social problem either because they've experienced it themselves yeah. in their own life, or they've got something in their interest set or their experience that makes them particularly attuned to this issue. So if you hire people who are genuinely mission aligned, yeah. you're going to get far less yeah. churn because they don't just see the job as a transaction. They're based on their sort of check they get at the end of the month through payroll. They see it as a you know, part of their identity yeah, the and their purpose. Yeah. So that's why it's so important to hire people who are mission aligned. It's not just about getting results, it's actually being able, be able to keep people. So I think that's really important. I think the other thing as well is the team. You know, having a fantastic recruitment process that, identifies highly talented people. That's not just about getting the best people who can deliver the most value in their jobs. It actually creates a culture that people want to be part of because talented people love being surrounded by talented people. It it makes you feel great to be able to have incredible conversations with people every day in the office, to have someone sat next to you, who you know can kind of work through that really tricky problem with you. Anyone who's a high performance person is going to really enjoy that so that's why it's so important to keep a high standard in your recruitment process because if you let that slip over time you're not only going to get worse people you're also going to reduce the kind of um, uh, stickiness of your high performance people they're going to be less likely to stay so i think that's really important as well we set the sort of bar super high of the people that we we hire for that reason and i think having a no dickhead policy is important as well. Uh, that's not an explicit part of our like culture uh, deck, but it's it's kind of implicit in what we sure. do. I think if you have someone in the business who you really dislike, again, it dramatically increases your chance of leaving, especially if that person's your manager. You know, there's, there's the the phrase, you "No know, people don't leave a business, they leave a manager," right? So I, I think making sure you have that really good the sync between your team is incredibly important, and being really attentive yeah. to that. You know, as a as a founder and being an exec team, you should put you know, 10, 20% of your time yeah. into thinking about your culture and your team and being you know, really receptive to changes. Now we do weekly pulse surveys through Slack where we get a lot of quantitative data yeah. on different parts of our culture across the business. And we do you no know, quarterly culture surveys. where We get that longer qualitative feedback. Now that, that's not just a HR te- box ticking exercise. That's about getting regular consistent data on how people feel yeah. about the way they're working Know their manager, know diversity within the business, know their pay, know all those things, and, and when you detect things, you can solve problems before they blow up into big, yeah. big issues. So yeah, I, I think thinking about not just how you create a culture, but how you measure it and refine it as well is incredibly important. It's not just about creating that culture deck, which I spoke about. It's about embedding it and kind of iterating on it over time. Culture is not static; mm. it's organic. Um, so yeah, I think that's how we've managed to, to build the culture that we have done today at zero gravity. Cool. And for those interested in zero gravity, whether that's as somebody that wants to
0: use the platform, somebody who wants to work for the platform, somebody who wants to hear about more about your story and journey,
1: where do they go? What's the best place? So zero gravity.co.uk or just type zero gravity into, into Google. Um, and if you're a young person from a low opportunity background, over you at school, or university, or you're just starting your professional career, you can sign up on the app. It takes two minutes. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. Great. Well, thanks for having me on. Awesome. Cool.
0: Hey, thanks for watching this podcast. Make sure that you like, subscribe, follow, comment, etc., etc. And I'll see you in the next episode.